Grace and peace. Today is week four of our Romans series. And our passage for today comes out of Romans 3. We're going to read from verses 9 through 26. Would you read it with me? It's what the Word of God says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. I could hear some of you saying, if you were paying attention to the reading of God's word, see, that is the reason why I am not a Christian. You see that word, righteousness, there? It means that Christians think that they are better than other people. That to be a Christian is to be righteous, therefore, better than others. When this word righteousness is used in our culture, it is almost never used in a positive way. It's used in a negative way. We think of self-righteous people. We think of bigoted people. But that's not at all what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate when he uses this word righteousness, which, by the way, it appears more than six times here in this passage in its main form, but other times in its varied form as well. So, as we think about what righteousness means, I want us to understand the meaning of righteousness. Then I want us to understand, in light of this passage, the problem with our righteousness. And then, lastly, the good news, which is a new kind of righteousness, which, by the way, is also the title of the sermon today, a new kind of righteousness. But let's look first at the meaning of the word righteousness. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he brings up this word righteousness here in this passage and in other passages in the book of Romans. Uh, righteousness is simply a performance record that validates you. 
Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but the Apostle Paul here in this passage, he is using courtroom language. He uses the word righteousness. He uses the word justify. He uses the word justice and just. It's as if humans are in God's courthouse trying to present their case, trying to present their records in order to be validated by God. There's an idea here of presenting a case before God. Now, I know that for some of you that throws you off because you're not as familiar to this legal language as these people were back in those days. See, uh, they were very familiar with this language when Paul uses it to illustrate uh, the hope that exists in Jesus Christ. Why? Because, uh, you know, courtroom settings were very common in uh, the culture back in those days. We're talking about small towns, small villages. Everything was decided in a courtroom setting. Every single dispute, if you owed people money, if you had mistreated somebody, and it was done in public, and everybody would come out to try to accompany the results and the verdict of that specific case, where people would hear witnesses, and their cases would be presented uh, before uh, the town's wise men, or in many cases, if it, had a, if it was a kingdom and the courts of the king, so that the monarch could decide and weigh in uh, in terms of what was supposed to be done as a result of that. So I think that another way for us to understand, so if you're having a hard time understanding that concept, or that framework or the context by which the Apostle Paul speaks. As we think about a performance record that validates us, I think in our culture, the closest illustration to that would not be a case that you would present before a judge, but maybe a resume that you put together. Uh, we are all working on resumes. Uh, that's how we transition from uh, one job to another or from one career to another. Uh, Throughout our professional life, we are recording our accomplishments and our experiences and creating a record that when we go into an interview, we say to people, look, this is why you would want to hire me for this job. Have you noticed that in your resume, you never list your mistakes, you never list your misunderstandings with your fellow co-workers. You, you never uh, list your shortcomings. You, you never list your deficiencies. You're always listing your accomplishments. You're always putting your best foot forward. Another way we can understand this idea of righteousness is maybe through a portfolio, which is a collection of our assets that we've been accumulating throughout our lives and throughout our careers. Nevertheless, we're all doing that. You may uh, not even have a portfolio, but you have a life portfolio where you're gathering all the things that you think are things that make you presentable and valuable before others so that you would receive a positive verdict. That's what working for your righteousness means. We're all trying to pass an, an, an inspection on the eye of another. That's what we're all doing. That's what you're doing. That's what I am doing. Uh, and listen, our social environment 
dictates that as well. Okay, so if you live in New York City, it's look at how much I have. If you live in Boston, if you come from Boston, it's look how much I know. If, if you're from Miami, you're from our, from our city here, you're saying to people, look how I dress. Look how my body uh, is shaped. Look uh, the person at the person that is next to me, okay? Uh, we're always trying to validate ourselves. We're always trying to gain approval of others by putting together this uh, record that validates who we are as people. I remember reading an article in the New York Times several years ago about this writer who had written a uh, bestseller. But the problem with uh, writing that bestseller where he got a lot of popular accolades for doing so was that he could never follow with a good enough work after that main work. All of his works that followed that work that had become a bestseller were not that great, uh, did not gain a lot of popularity. Uh, It was not seen as a masterpiece in the eyes of the critics. And he began to feel horrible about himself. He began to struggle with his identity. He began to lose uh, his joy and, 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 and the idea of purpose and meaning in life. And then he wrote this line in his article, which he says this, at that point, I have made my career the center of my worth. In his own words, uh, he says this, when good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. He looked at writing. He looked at his career as a writer to justify himself before people. That was his record of righteousness. And again, we're all doing that. The religious person is saying, look at my morality and look at my goodness. The irreligious person is saying, look at my freedom. The wealthy person is saying, look at my assets. The poor person is saying, look at my suffering, look at my pain. We're all trying to build a righteousness of our own. These are just ways that we have so that we would hear from others the voices of approval, the voices of love, We're saying to others, as we are presenting our case, as we are presenting our life's own portfolio, as we are presenting to others our own life's resume is, will you love me? Will you accept me? We're saying to God, when we present our own righteousness that we build, this this type of resume before God, will you answer my prayers? It reminds me of that line in the very famous movie, Rocky Balboa, Rocky One. I think it was either Rocky One or Rocky Two, where he says to Adrian, his wife, the following words. He says, uh, I need to go the distance with the champ, and only then I will know that I am not a bum. Uh, Harold Abrams, who is Uh, One of the runners in the chariots of fire says this, I will raise my eyes and look down that quarter four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I, will you be able to justify your whole existence? Will you find the words of approval and acceptance and the eyes of love that your heart truly longs for? The Bible says that there's a problem with that. Second point, 
the problem with our own righteousness. I hear in the passage, the Apostle Paul is very clear to say that this righteousness that we build for ourselves, that we are trying uh, hard to put together, cannot be attained by our own works. Look at what he says in verses 19 and 20, and then verse 23. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So here is a picture of what happened back in those days when somebody would defend themselves before the judge, right, in that courtroom setting that I spoke to you about, which is the context of this passage. And their case was not good enough and they were not convincing, what would happen? They would be slapped in the mouth by uh, somebody in, in the courtroom, meaning shut up, you are done. You uh, will be condemned. Just wait for the judge's verdict. And so he's saying when we do that before God, we have no case to bring before him. Continue on in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't know if you remember the initial question of uh, the passage that we read in verse 9, where the Apostle Paul uh, says, what then, are Jews any better off? And then he says, no, not at all. Here's the case that's being presented before God in this passage. Are Jews who are religious, who are the people of the promise, are they any special? Are they better than the Gentiles? Are they better than Gentiles? And the Apostle Paul says, absolutely not. The religious are not better than the irreligious. The moral are not better than the immoral. Why? Now, now, now follow through with me here. Keep following uh, what I'm trying to communicate here. Why? Because of what he says now from verses 10 through 18. Okay, These are quotations from the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 14 and then some passages from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 59. This is, this is what he says. Why? Why is that? Why are uh, religious people not better than irreligious people? Uh, why is, are you not better than uh, a pagan person that you know? Because, he says there in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he goes on through verse 18, you know, explaining that based on God's standards, we all fall short. He goes on to explain that in God's courtroom, all peoples by themselves, standing on themselves, standing on them on their own. Like if you're standing on your own before God's courtroom, you stand condemned. All people stand condemned before God. I can almost imagine a conversation taking place here in God's courtroom based in this passage. Someone trying to plead their case before God of why they should be accepted. And saying to God, hey, uh, God, but I, I am a good person. I do no harm to people. And then God responding, yeah, but you're not good enough according to my standards. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
And then that person coming to God and saying, yeah, God, but I seek you. I am trying to run after you. I go to church. I, I live a pretty religious life. And God's saying, yes, but you do that not to get me, but to get things from me. There's no one that seeks God, he says here in the passage. But God, I, at the end of the day, I, I still do a lot of good. I give my money away to the poor, and I'm kind to others in my office space. And God is saying, yes, but you do these things for the wrong reason. You do these things to be observed by others. You do these things to have your prayers answered. You know what the Apostle Paul is getting to here? This is how sinful we are. Even our good deeds are done with the wrong motivation to try to manipulate people's opinions, to try to manipulate God's opinion of us, that's why we do good. Apart from Christ, all our good deeds, like Isaiah writes, are just like filthy rags. This reminds me of a very famous story once told by an old preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. The title of the story is The Carrot and the Horse. You may have heard it before, but if you did, let me tell you again. The story goes like this, that in one particular kingdom, there was a peasant that loved and adored and appreciated and respected his king very much. And so after one year's harvest, he gathers his crops and he selects his biggest, most juicy carrot, and he decides to present it to his king. So he goes up into the palace, goes into the courtroom, and he says to his king, he says, Oh, my king, I love and I appreciate you so much. And to show you how much I appreciate love and respect and adore you, I want to present you my best carrot this year. The story goes on to say that the king was very moved by that gift, and he said to him, I want to give you a gift as well. In return for this carrot, I want to double the amount of land that you have. And obviously the peasant was very happy and he left the courtroom rejoicing. The story says that there was a nobleman that worked in the palace that heard all of that. And he said to himself, wow, if that peasant gave the king a carrot and in return he doubled his land, his land's portfolio. What would happen if I gave the king one of my best horses? And so the next day he shows up in court and he brings his best horse and he presents it to the king and he says to the king, oh, my dear king, I love, adore, and I appreciate you. He almost repeats the words of the peasant the day before. And he says, you know, to show my appreciation, my love, and admiration to you, I present you my best horse. The king uh, discerns that, that uh, noble man's heart, and he receives his gift and says, thank you very much, you may now go. And as that noble man is leaving the courtroom, he stops, and he can't help it but to turn around and, and ask the king, king, I, I am puzzled. I, I don't understand. The king says, what don't you understand? He said, uh, yesterday that peasant came in here and he gave you a carrot and you doubled his land. I gave to you my best horse, this beautiful stallion, and you just thank me and you send me home? And the king says, yes, he gave me his carrot. You gave yourself the horse. <laughs> 
See, that's how many times we relate to God. That's the picture of how we put forth our good deeds and our good works. We only do so so that God will love us, so that God would answer our prayer, so that we would be accepted and loved by him. Now, we find ourselves in a very hard spot because not only does the text tell us and remind us that our righteousness cannot be attained by our own works because our hearts are corrupted. You know, two weeks ago we talked about that. At the core, the reason why we do the good has a lot of bad in it. So no one can meet up and stand up to God's standards. But it also reminds us that this is no way to live. It is exhausting to live your life, try to pass the inspection on other people's eyes. Religion puts an enormous burden on us. But so does irreligion. So does any other pursuit in life that we embark and that we enter with the hopes of building a performance record that will validate us. In fact, I would suspect that many of you, many of you right now feel exhausted. You have invested so much time in your career trying to put together this performance record in order to validate you before your peers. And it hasn't been enough. And you have come short. You're so tired. Some of you have put in so much effort in presenting yourself as a beautiful person. But time is running on you. You are running against time. You're running against gravity. And you feel tired because it's never enough. What you put in your body or on your body, it is never enough. And some of you are religious people. And you've been trying so hard. And you can't bear anymore the weight of all of these rules that you have amounted upon yourself, you have become a mean-spirited person. You have become a constipated person. You are no fun to be around. You put the burden of your own righteousness on others, a righteousness that you can't even fulfill yourself. It's exhausting. And Paul knows this because he is speaking to Bible-believing Jews about this. He knows that they're tired. He knows that they're exhausted. And that it's in that context, in this passage, that he brings forth the hope of the gospel in this new kind of righteousness. It's at this moment, after unveiling our hearts, and showing our failed attempts to build a righteousness of our own, that he now unveils the glittering beauty of the gospel. It's in verse 21 that he does so. Look at what he says. 
But now, I love the word but here. He says, you can't save yourself. You can't justify yourselves. You cannot develop a righteousness that will get you the sense of approval and acceptance and love that you're looking for from God or others. But now, there's hope. But now, there is good news. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is the Apostle Paul saying to us about this new kind of righteousness? He's saying, number one, that this righteousness has to be received. It cannot be achieved. It has to come as a gift. If we can't live up to God's standards, if we can't meet up his standard of perfection, in order to have that kind of righteousness, it has to come to us as a gift. In verse 22, which is the following verse, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What is this righteousness? It is an, a righteousness that is received and it's not achieved, and it is received through faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? How do I take possession of this new kind of righteousness? I receive. And what do I believe when I receive this righteousness? I believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life. That what you and I cannot attain by our works that Jesus attained. In verse 26 now, which is the last verse that we read, he, he says that, uh, that Jesus is both the just, meaning he has lived a sinless life, and a justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He's saying that the reason why Jesus lived this life of perfect obedience, why Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, why Jesus was able to keep and measure up to God's standard was for our sakes because we can't. This is what the Christian salvation is all about. This is why it is such good news. It's because Jesus lived the life that you and I should live for our sakes. It was, it was for us. And he also died the death that we should all have died. Because we fail to meet the standards of God, in God's courtroom, we all stand condemned. And the verdict is death. Jesus goes to the cross on the back end to receive the penalty that's entitled to us, that it's due to us. So that's why he was just. And that's also why, he says here, the last word that he uses in verse 26, that's why he can be a justifier for us. That if through faith you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life for you, and that he died on the cross to pay for your sins. You can be not 
You cannot achieve a righteousness of your own, but you can be declared righteousness through him. See, this righteousness is a gift, like he says here. It has to be received, and it's, it comes to us through faith. When we say, I exchange my failed attempts of constructing a righteousness of my own, and I trust in the righteousness on Christ that now stands on my behalf. Christ was just for me, and because he was just for me, and he died for me, he is also my justifier. I remember a story that was once uh, told to me, and it has stayed with me through the years, where the gospel was explained. You know, the Bible says that one day all of us will have to stand before God's judgment seat, and we will have to give an account for our lives. And in that story, it says that, you know, at that point, uh, God will say, hey, okay, before uh, I decide what to do with you, I am going to play a movie of your life. When I first heard the story, it was a VHS tape that God would plug in and play. This is an imaginary story. Don't go looking in the Bible for it, by the way. But let's say that there's a file. He says to one of the angels, download that file. It's the story of this person's life, and let's watch the story of their life, and then we will decide what we will do with them. And in that story, uh, you know, it's expected for all to see the good things that you have done and the bad things that you have done as well. Now imagine if that were really true, and imagine if you one day have to stand before God with that weight upon yourself. Man, I, I, would, I would be worried because there's things about my life that I wouldn't want everybody to see, that I would be embarrassed and ashamed of if it was to be played for all of humanity to see. But then the story goes on as the movie begins and as I'm shaking in my boots because I know the chapters and I know the episodes and I know the plot of my life, I begin to see the life of Jesus. I begin to see him walking amongst the multitudes and I begin to see him caring for the sick and the poor and casting out demons, and doing miracles, and, and teaching with power in the fields, and in the synagogues. And I see him going to the cross. And, and, then I, and then I say to God, wait, wait a minute, that's not the movie of my life. And God would then look at me, or look at you, and say, your life story has been exchanged for his, and therefore, this is, in fact, the movie of your life. And the approval and the acceptance, therefore, that the Son has from the Father, it is now yours because you have believed in him. You have forfeited your own righteousness and you have exchanged your righteousness for his righteousness. And even though in this life you will still be a sinner, you will die a sinner, you will die making mistakes, 
before God, you have been absolved. You have been redeemed. You have been accepted because you no longer stand before God on your righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. Today, I pray that you will have faith to exchange your righteousness for Christ's righteousness, that you will not seek to be justified by the works of your own hand, but by the works of Jesus Christ done for you. My hope today is that you will have enough faith to reach out to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, I repent. I exchange my righteousness for yours. I come before the Father, not on my own, not on, my, on the basis of my performance or on my merits, but on the basis of your performance and your merits. If you want to do that today, I want you to pray with me this prayer. You can repeat after me wherever you're at. You may be driving. You may be at home. You may be in a hotel room. I want you to repeat this prayer with me. And I guarantee you that if you pray this prayer, your life will be forever changed. Pray with me. Jesus, today I repent. I repent of trying to build a righteousness of my own. I confess that I am exhausted. I, com I confess that I am tired. I know that it has not been enough. And so today I pray that you take my burden and you give me yours. Today I pray that you will take my failed righteousness full of holes and you would give me yours. Today help me to live in light of this new righteousness that I did not achieve but that today I have received. In Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you prayed this prayer today, we would love to follow up with you. You can fill out the form in the comment section, and somebody from our team, a pastor perhaps, will get a hold of you. And we would love to show you the next steps that you must take as a new follower of Jesus Christ. It has been a blessing to be with you this Sunday. God bless you. And have a great rest of your day.